John 16. Please open your Bibles with me to John 16 as we continue our study here in the Gospel of John. So, uh, I have these memories of being a kid and thinking I was asking a really profound question and then realizing as I got older that it was actually a pretty dumb question. Have you ever been, maybe you've been the parent and your, your parents, you're having a conversation between yourselves and you're discussing some actually truly profound idea, maybe something that you've learned from scripture or maybe, I don't know, scientific observations or something, I don't know. And uh, your kids are overhearing, they're, they're listening, and they butt in with a, um, an insight, and they think that they understand what's going on. I don't know, just imagine you're talking about the theory of relativity, E equals MC squared, right? And your kid says, whoa, yeah, that makes total sense, right? Because, and then just some silly answer, and you're like, well, I, I, I don't want to hurt the kid's feelings, so yeah, good job. You're doing great. Keep going, kid. Keep learning. And you're just like, well, has nothing to do with it, but maybe someday they'll understand, right? You understand what I'm getting at? I, I don't know. I was that kid, and, and then I grew up and realized my thoughts weren't actually that great, actually, in the, in the end. It's interesting because something similar happens in our text this morning here in John 16, the disciples think that they have a profound insight. And Jesus is just like, you, you guys just aren't getting it yet. Notice with me, John 16, and, and we're reading in verses 23 through 33. John 16, 23 through 33. In that day, Jesus says, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came from the Father. I came from the Father and have come into the world. And now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Our text this morning marks the conclusion of Jesus' teaching here in the upper room. There's one more part of the upper room discourse. Normally we call that the, the high priestly prayer in, in John 17. But 
Here in John 16, Jesus concludes his teaching ministry. In this final section, we see that Jesus is working for our joy and Jesus is working for our peace in believing. So our faith in Jesus leads to deepest joy and most satisfied peace. This joy and this peace is not just something that's promised to us at the last day when we get to heaven. No, no. This joy and peace is the promised experience now for the Christian. Jesus is about to teach us about the fullness of joy and peace. So this morning we must content our souls in the good news that Jesus is working for our joy and peace in believing For the joy and peace of our own souls, we must persevere in believing in Jesus. Consider, first of all, the joy that Jesus is working for. It's a joy in in prayer. Jesus begins by teaching his disciples about how to make requests of God. Jesus teaches that God wants us to pray to him so that we would have abounding joy in him. Again, verses 23 through 28, the first thought here, in the first day you will, in, I'm sorry, in that day you will ask nothing of me, truly, truly I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. So Jesus is teaching his disciples once more about the privilege of prayer. And as we've heard Jesus teaching about the privilege of prayer throughout this upper room discourse, but now Jesus is, is teaching us the reason for this privilege that we have in prayer. If you've been with us over the last number of weeks, you'll remember that Jesus has mentioned this new privilege that believers have in prayer a number of times. Let's take a few minutes, just remind ourselves of some of the things that Jesus has taught about the privilege that we as Christians now have in prayer. It began back in chapter 14. In chapter 14, in verses 12 to 14, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than he, than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So the kind of authority, the kind of answer to requests that Jesus talks about here, this comes to those who genuinely believe in Jesus. If you genuinely believe in Jesus, you will ask for things that please the Father. And the Father will be pleased to give those things to you because in this, God is glorified. So we also notice in uh, John 15 and verse number 7, Jesus says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. 
So here we see that abiding in Jesus is believing in Jesus. To abide in Jesus is to persevere in saving faith in a way that is marked by spirit-produced fruit. So when you abide in Jesus, as you persevere in your believing in Jesus, Jesus' words abide in you. And you're going to ask for those things that please Jesus. Then you will ask whatever you wish. And it will be done for you because what you wish, what you desire, that is perfectly consistent with what God is desiring to give to you. Once more, we saw in John 15 and verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. Whatever you ask the Father in the name of Jesus, he gives to you because you're, you're bearing the fruit of Jesus in your life. So Jesus has been teaching over and over and over throughout this upper room discourse that the Father gives liberally to us. The Father gives generously to us. When we are abiding in Jesus, when we are believing in Jesus, when we are bearing the fruit of Jesus in this world, our wants, our desires, our wishes They're going to align with those things that God wants. They're going to align with those things that Jesus wants. And so when we make requests to God, it will be according to the pleasure of God. And it will be the pleasure of God to answer our requests, to give us the things that we ask. So the point of Jesus' teaching so far here in the upper room discourse about prayer, about our privilege in prayer The point is that as we persevere in our believing in Jesus, God is going to transform our wants, transform our desires in such a way that we're going to want what he wants. Which means that when we ask God for anything, when we ask in Jesus' name with Jesus' authority, God will answer our requests. And he does this to glorify his name in Jesus. God is seen as glorious when you pray for those things that are according to Jesus' will and God answers. So Jesus is going to add on this teaching here in our passage in John 16. And now Jesus is uh, focusing on God's answering of our requests. And not uh, not just that he's going to answer our requests, not just the, the purpose for answering us according to our requests, we're going to see that God is going to answer our requests so that our joy might be full. Ask, Jesus says, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. What are you willing to do for abounding joy? What are you willing to do for joy that is full? I I was watching a few weeks ago a media interview with the Oklahoma women's college softball team. That may sound a little obscure to you, but, you know, it was uh, softball, the college softball World Series, and uh, the Oklahoma team apparently did pretty well. And uh, 
Um, I am a sports kind of person. If it's competitive, I'm all about it. If you haven't noticed this about me, just come tonight and play cornhole. It gets competitive. <laughs> so I was watching this interview with the women's, Oklahoma women's college softball team. And the ESPN reporter, ESPN, like ESPN, the, the, the liberal sports people, you know? They asked this question to the, to the girls' softball team. How did you manage to have such a joyful attitude all season long despite all this adversity? And of course, it's, it's college, and so adversity. What's adversity in college softball? Seriously. But anyway, that was the question that was asked. And one player answered the question by very, very clearly explaining that her joy and the joy of her teammates was not based in the circumstances of her life with how this game was going or how that game was going. Instead, she said, her joy was rooted in her relationship with Jesus Christ. I was like, what? Well, that's interesting. In fact, she, she went on. I mean, that would have been like a, an easy stopping point if she just said that. That's like generic American Christianity. She went on. And she said that circumstances can only bring temporary happiness at best. The only, this is what she said. I'm not putting words in her mouth. She said the only way to have true joy is by trusting in Christ. And I heard that testimony thinking, wow, there is a faithful Christian on the Oklahoma girls softball team. But no sooner does she get done than another teammate chimes in with equal conviction and with equal evangelical faith in Jesus, she, con she articulated the same joy. I thought, wow, there's two outspoken Christians on the team. But then a third started talking. Now I'm just thinking, this is just silly. <laughs> this third girl says the same exact thing in her own words the same clarity and the same conviction of her other two teammates. And she emphasizes now that this is the perspective of the whole team and it's the conviction of their coach. Now, I know nothing about the coach of the women's, the Oklahoma women's college softball team. But I tell you, I was genuinely impressed to hear all three of these players articulating a genuine evangelical faith in Jesus as the source of their abiding joy. That was amazing. On ESPN. This is the kind of joy that Jesus is talking about in our text this morning. It is the joy that is promised to Jesus' disciples as they make their prayers to the Father. We have direct access to the Father and he will answer our requests for our joy. But I'm going to take a line from my eight-year-old daughter at this point, and I'm going to ask, Jerry, you know it. What's the question? Why? Why does this bring us joy? Why is it that your joy is bound up in the Father giving you what you ask for? Well, it first glance, that might seem like a really obvious question. I mean, honestly, you like to get what you want, don't you? 
You know, you get close to birthday or Christmas and your spouse asks you what you want as a gift. Or if you're a kid here this morning, your mom and dad ask what you want for Christmas or your birthday. And your imagination just starts racing with all the things that you think are going to bring you contentment and happiness. Not to be overly stereotypical, but guys, maybe it's that carbon fiber driver, right? Or again, not to be overly stereotypical, but ladies, maybe it's that robotic vacuum, I don't know. Sounds kind of cool. Just hit the button and it vacuums the whole house for you. Or at least it vacuums the whole first floor. I don't know if they make them so they can go up the stairs yet. But Think about those kinds of requests. Think about those kinds of requests. They focus on you. They focus on what's going to make your life easier or better for some reason. And there may be all sorts of, of selfless, beneficial results to requests like that. But in the end, that kind of a request is about you. And that kind of a request is not actually going to bring you real, lasting joy. Because real, true joy cannot come from you. You do, you do not understand rightly what will satisfy your soul. Only God, your creator, understands what will satisfy your soul. God, your creator, will bring you real, lasting joy to your soul. But the amazing thing about your relationship with this God is that he intends that you, not only from the outside, that he bring this joy into your life as though it's simply by bringing you certain things, No, no, no. God intends to transform you from the inside to transform your wants and your desires so that genuine joy comes within you. God wants you to be joyful and satisfied. And he intends to transform you such that what you want, what you are looking for in your joy is in fact what he desires to give to you. This is what Peter means when he talks about how God has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Listen to this. So that through them, through giving us these promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature. Partakers of the divine nature. How do you become a partaker of the divine nature? Is it like by becoming omnipresent? Are you going to become omnipresent? No. Is it by becoming omniscient? Are you going to become all-knowing? No. That's not how you become a partaker of the divine nature. You become a partaker of the divine nature by wanting the things that God wants, by delighting in the things that God delights in. Your affections and your will become aligned with the affections and the will of God himself. And so quite naturally, you will be asking for those things which please God. And this will bring you fullness of joy. But once more, I'm going to ask my eight-year-old daughter's question. Why? There's always another why, isn't there? Why would God do this for you? 
We, we just saw the what. The purpose of God. That your joy may be full. That's the what. But what is the reason for why God's going to do this? What's in it for God? What reason does God have to fill up your joy? Notice verses 25 to 28. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from the Father. I came from the Father and have come into the world. Now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. In these words, Jesus acknowledges that he has been speaking cryptically to his disciples over time. The important thing for us to observe is what Jesus says in verse 27. The Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came into the world. This is why God cares. This is the reason why God will give you what you are asking for. This is why God is working for your joy. God is working for your joy because he loves you. And he loves you with a special, saving, sanctifying kind of love. Jesus draws our attention to the proof of God's love for us. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you. I want these words to sink down deep into our souls. You see, we have a tendency to imagine God as far off from us, disinterested in us, concerned with with far more important things that are going on in this world or universe. And so since we are unconvinced of the, the personal, intimate love of the Father for us, we start to look around for another intercessor. Someone who can come and plead our cause before the Father on our behalf. Since there's no chance in the world that the Heavenly Father is really paying attention to us. Isn't that the way things work here on this human level? There are an elite few who run the world around us. If we need something, we have very little chance of going directly to those elite. We need connections. We need someone who knows the elite and who knows us, who can, who can arbitrate for us, mediate for us, someone with whom we can win a hearing. And so we go to Jesus. Scripture teaches that Jesus is our advocate. Jesus is our intercessor. And so we imagine that what that means is that we need Jesus to go between us and God and to win a hearing to God on our behalf because God is far off. God is concerned with a lot of other things. But what if Jesus is too busy? I mean, Jesus is God. Maybe Jesus is mediating for the important people, the pastors, the bishops, the pope. And so we feel like we need someone else to get Jesus' attention, to get God's attention. You know, this is exactly the logic that led to the development 
of the Roman Catholic doctrine of the Virgin Mary as the mediatrix of all graces. When Christians began to imagine that God is so far off and God is unapproachable that he, he can't be bothered with us personally. And then Christians begin to imagine that Jesus is likewise busy mediating for all the other people in the world. A void was created in the Christian soul that yearned for the personal attention of God himself. But God always promised that personal attention. You don't need Mary. You don't need some super saint. You don't even need Jesus to win a hearing before the Father. For the Father himself loves you. That promise from Jesus fills that void and that yearning in your soul. This promise is specific and it is on purpose for you. The Father himself loves you. Why does God work for your joy in giving you the things that you ask from him? Because he loves you. Full stop. Brothers and sisters, does this satisfy your soul knowing that the Father loves you? He loves you. And he has made you a partaker of his very nature. Giving you his heart. Giving you his spirit. So that you may want the things that he wants. So that you may delight in the things that he delights in. And he delights in giving you the things that you ask of him. Not because Jesus is mediating for you. Not because some super saint is mediating for you. But because he himself loves you. This brings joy to our souls. But Jesus is not only working for your joy as if that was a small thing. Jesus is working for more than that. Jesus is working for our peace in believing. We heard Jesus acknowledge his, his cryptic words with the disciples, but he said that there's coming a day when he's not going to speak so cryptically. Again, notice with me verses 25 and 26. I have said these things to you in a figure of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. Now, in response to these words, the disciples say, down in verse number 29, Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and you do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. The disciples are like, we get it. We get it. We understand. Yay, score for the disciples. What does Jesus say? Notice 31 to 32. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you'll be scattered, each one to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. And yet, despite these hard words, Jesus closes by saying, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Notice again the disciples' words. 
This is why we believe you came from God. Wonderful, we think. The disciples believe. Jesus has been working through this whole gospel for their faith. Isn't that what Jesus said? I'm working for your faith. I'm working that you believe. Jesus wants the disciples to persevere in their believing. And now the disciples confess, we believe. This is good news. Now, Jesus did say rather plainly, the Father himself loves you. That is really clear speech. And that is not only clear speech, but that's good news for the disciples. And, and the disciples seem encouraged. They understand what Jesus is saying. The Father loves us. And yet, the disciples seem to be basing their faith, their believing in Jesus on the fact that they're believing in Jesus. They seem to be placing their faith in this, because you have loved me and believed that I came from God. Now, it's great that the disciples know these things about Jesus. It's, it's, it's apparently great that the disciples don't need to question anyone about who Jesus is. It's great the disciples believe that Jesus has come from God. And yet at the same time, it seems as though this confession from the disciples is woefully inadequate. I mentioned at the beginning that illustration of a, a kid asking, trying to understand a, a hard idea and thinking in a very limited sense that he understands what his mother and father are talking about. He understands the smallest part and so he thinks he's got the big picture. The problem on the part of the disciples here in this text is that they seem to be placing their faith in their faith. They're placing their confidence in the fact that they understand who Jesus is, who they believe him to be. Rather than abiding in Jesus, rather than persevering in faith in Jesus, they're believing in their belief. And Jesus' Jesus's response is incredulous, if not a little sarcastic. Do you now believe? Now you believe? After all this time, after all these signs, all these teachings, now you believe? Jesus has been working for their belief. He has been cultivating belief in their hearts over these three years. And now, here at literally the very end of it all, in the very last moments before his betrayal, his disciples are apparently believing in their belief rather than believing in Jesus. The disciples confess, now we know you know all things. So what does Jesus tell them with this knowledge of all things? The hour has come when you all will abandon me and be scattered. Uh, that language of abandoning Jesus and being scattered, that, that language is actually a, a quote from the prophets. Zechariah chapter 13 and verse number 7, the prophet prophesied, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. The shepherd is about to be struck and the sheep are about to be scattered. Jesus, we know you know all things. Yep, Jesus knows all things. And he knows the disciples believing is about to fail. 
this moment and this warning from Jesus is important not only for his disciples, but for you and me as well. Again, throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus has been working for the faith of the twelve. But John is writing not for the faith of the twelve, but for your faith. The day has already come when Jesus speaks to us openly about the Father. By his Spirit, Jesus has revealed everything that we need for life and godliness. Everything that we need to believe in the Father. But your eyes can be in one of two places. Your eyes can be on Jesus in his word, or your eyes can be on yourself. You can be looking to Jesus in belief, assured of your relationship with Jesus because your eyes are fixed on him, or you can be looking at yourself. And you can be looking for your confidence and your assurance in the fact that you are believing. If your eyes are on yourself, if you're looking for assurance and you're looking for comfort and you're looking for encouragement in the fact that, that you belong to Jesus simply because you believe or because you have enough fruit in your life, well, you're going to scatter. You're going to stumble. It's not only when you're believing in believing, it's when you're believing in Jesus that you persevere. Jesus' point is that you don't believe in your believing, you believe in me. You persevere in your faith when your eyes are on Jesus, not when your eyes are on yourself. You know, like the disciples, there will be times in all of our lives that we will stumble and we will fail. In your relationship with Jesus, there will be times when you stumble in your belief. So it's important to hear the final words of this text and remember what Jesus is saying this, why Jesus is saying this to us. Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus is working for your peace in your believing. Everything that Jesus said, including this final rebuke to the disciples for their unclear belief, all of this has been said for their peace, for your peace. The disciples are about to face tribulation in the world. They are about to face suffering in the world. Jesus told them all these things for their peace. So think about this. How's, how do you respond as you stumble in the world? When you fail in the world, how do you respond in, in your belief? You know, these days, it doesn't so much look like Jesus has overcome the world. We look at the world around us, and these days it seems like the devil is having a heyday. But Jesus has spoken. Jesus has made peace. Jesus has overcome the world. And believing in Jesus looks like trusting that Jesus has conquered. Abiding in the peace that comes to your soul when you remind yourself of this promise, Jesus has conquered. And Jesus 
has brought you peace. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is working this morning for your joy and for your peace. God answers your requests so that you might abound in joy precisely because he loves you. He rebukes your weak faith so that you might have peace in him, in his victory over the world. So how's your belief this morning? Do you believe that God himself loves you? Do you believe that the Father personally cares for you? Or do you sort of imagine that you need someone to come between you and God? You need someone to to win God's attention and to win God's favor for you. Brothers and sisters, the Father loves you. And because the Father loves you, he is joining you to himself so that your desires become, so his desires become your desires. So that the things that satisfy him become the things that satisfy you. So that his affections become yours. And as you believe in him, as you persevere in believing in him, when you ask for anything in the Father's name, the Father delights to give it to you. He does this because he loves you. So rejoice in the love of God for you. Not only that, but you can rest in the peace of God. Jesus is working for your belief so that you would trust that he has, in fact, overcome the world. Don't believe in your belief. Don't be looking at yourself and whether or not you're believing enough or whether or not you're producing enough fruit. Don't assure yourself that you truly belong to Jesus because of anything in yourself. You are insufficient. Believe in Jesus. Though you may fail him, though you may stumble in your belief, he will never stumble in his purpose. He has overcome the world. And because he has overcome the world, you can have peace in him. So believe in his victory and believe in his peace. If you're here this morning and this joy and this peace is not yours because you are not believing, you will not find joy and peace in this world. There is no lasting joy. There is no lasting peace apart from this Jesus who gives you his joy and his peace. You can find temporary entertainment. You can find temporary happiness you will not find lasting joy and peace apart from the peace of Jesus. So look to Jesus. Believe that this sacrifice that he offered himself on the cross, his perfect life for your filthy life, is sufficient for you. He satisfied the Father so the Father can be peaceful with you. If you believe in Jesus, don't look to yourself, don't look to your joys, don't look to your pieces. Look to Christ. Father, I thank you.